0: your Bibles if you would please and turn me to the book of 1st John. 1st John chapter 2 is where I want to direct your attention this morning. We're going to read from chapter uh, verse 28 through chapter 3 verse 10. You'll find 1st John at the end of the Bible. Uh, if you come to the book of Revelation, turn left just a page or two and you'll find 1st John chapter 2 verse 28. We're not going to look at the whole section in detail, but I want to read these verses from 1st John chapter 2 verse Verse 28 through three ten. All right, follow along as I read from the scriptures. And now, dear children, continue in him, so that when he appears, we may, be, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, That we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that He appeared so that He might take away our sins, and in Him is no sin. No one who lives in Him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen Him or known Him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous just as he is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother or sister. Of all the criticisms that sting followers of Christ, Christians the most, I think the criticism that stings us the most is hypocrisy. No one likes to be called a hypocrite. And a a new scandal will break out into the headlines. Some pastor, some church has done something and will be revealed again to be hypocrites. Does anybody here know a hypocrite? Do you know any hypocrites? Now, the chief reason that this criticism stings so much is because it's often true. I know hypocrites. In fact, I am a hypocrite. No member of our church lives up to what uh, he or she believes. We're all hypocrites. It's not something that we encourage or celebrate. You know, we don't have t-shirts or anything that say I'm a hypocrite. but, But we all fall short. We all fall short of our own standards. I think I could argue, I think I could make a case that hypocrisy is not something that's unique to Christianity or to Christians. I think if you could go out anywhere in the mall or anywhere and just ask anybody if they do everything that they think they should do. Do you eat the foods that you think you should eat and avoid the foods that you think you shouldn't eat? Do you, do you spend money the way you think you should spend money? Do you spend your time doing the things that you think you should spend your time doing? I think everybody would say no. Their standards are a lot higher than their actual practice. But we're not talking about other people. We're talking about ourselves this morning. Uh, we're hypocrites. In fact... I'm not even sure, as I think about it, that you can be a Christian without this knowledge of your own hypocrisy. See, in order to be a Christian, you have to recognize that there's a difference between the standards, uh, uh, the way things should be in your life, the way God made them to be, and the life that you actually live. Seeing and understanding that difference is one of the things that drives us to Christ in the first place. The charge of hypocrisy stings because it's true. But there's something else that's interesting about that charge. I'm not sure if you've thought about this, but that criticism actually shows us that those who make it have at least a little bit of understanding of what Jesus is supposed to do in someone's life. Following Jesus is supposed to change the way you live. You can only charge someone with being a hypocrite if you know that, if you have some idea about how their life is supposed to to be like. You're a hypocrite, and I know that because I can see the difference between the way you're supposed to be and the way you actually are. Now, whether those people who talk about hypocrisy know it or not, they are echoing uh, some of what the Apostle John wrote in those verses that we just read. This whole book that we've been reading over the last several weeks uh, is devoted to answering hard questions about what it means to follow Jesus. Jesus. So there were some, John is writing to a group of churches, and some people in those churches had left the church, and uh, they were saying that they had a superior understanding of what it means to be a Christian. We've got something better. We've left the church, but we, we really have the answers. So John wrote this letter to help his readers understand uh, their true place as a follower of Jesus. In the face of these competing claims, what does it mean to be a follower of Christ? Well, John proposes three tests. We've been talking about them. They're repeated throughout the book. First, there's the truth test. Do you believe what the Bible teaches about the Lord Jesus, that he is the Son of God incarnate? Then there's the love test. Do you love fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? John hinted at that, right? We got that at the end of verse 10. It says, um, "No one, you must love your brother and sister there. And then third... Most of this passage actually is devoted to the third test, the moral test, or the obedience test, or the righteousness test, either word works. Being a follower of Jesus is about what you believe, and it's about what how you behave. You can see that so clearly in verses like verse six. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. There's your behavior. Verse nine No one who is born of God will continue to sin. Verse ten anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child. He's writing about this a lot. Now, um, we're going to look at those verses in greater detail the next time that we're together. But for today, just for a few minutes that we're in the Scriptures, I want to think with you about the first three verses of chapter 3. John here, he seems to interrupt himself, and he pauses to remind his readers why followers of Jesus lead different lives. What motivates us to pursue this different sort of life that he commands in verses 6, 9, and 10? What's pushing us forward? Here are two motivating factors, and uh, frankly, they're basic to Christianity. Uh, they're basic to Christianity, but they're not thin. In fact, they're dense, central truths in, uh, that we profess. So why do we pursue righteousness? Why are we after this different sort of life that John writes about? Two reasons. I want to show you them from the text this morning, and my hope is that I want to quicken your, your pursuit of these things in your life. My wife and I are teaching our oldest daughter, Claire, how to drive. It's a wonderful experience. Um, she's, she's doing an excellent job. One challenge that she has, though, in driving, maybe some of you remember this, is that she will not go fast enough on the road. When you first get behind the wheel, of course, 15 miles an hour sounds like you're breaking all speed records, right? Um, uh, Claire is very cautious. She's very careful, and sometimes she is slow. So I often on the road say to her, you need to speed up a little bit. You need to you need to keep going, at least within shooting distance of the speed limit, okay? You need to go on a little bit faster. That's not the problem I'm going to have with her siblings, but Claire is <laughs> cautious and careful. Brothers and sisters, I, I, I want to do the same thing for you. I want to, I want, to I want you to speed up a little bit in following Jesus. I want you to, to give it some more gas. And here's some reasons why. Two of them. Number one, the love of God. The love of God. Verse one begins of chapter three. See what great love the Father has lavished on us. The word "lavish" is good. I like the word "lavish," but this verse makes me wish for the old King James. If you've read the King James Translation, you understand. Because the King James Translation starts with the word, Behold, behold what manner of love the Father has given us. Behold, behold. It means stop, look at it, think about it. Worship, be in awe of this. Marvel at this love of God. This is the moment of, of worship for John. If it were part of his vocabulary, this is the sort of word that my son would use when showing me one of his Lego creations. So he'll get a new box of Legos for his birthday or for Christmas, and he'll spend time putting it together. And one of the first questions he asked is, can I show this to you? What he means is, do you have a moment to stop what you're doing and come and be in awe of my Legos? He he, uh, uh, he wants to show me how he built it and how it was designed by the Lego engineers. And he wants to show me all the moving parts and the intricate details. He wants me to behold. He wants me to marvel. John wants you to worship. Behold God's love. Behold what great love. What sort of love. What manner of love. This word refers to something that's from another country, it's foreign. John Stott says, this is love that is out of this world. It's from another planet. It's utterly unique and it deserves your admiration. Look at God's out of this world love. It's so deep and so high and so wide and so long. It changes you. It makes you a child of God. Now follow this for a minute. Howard Marshall says that he thinks that, that he sees a parallel between this passage in 1 John 3 and a conversation that Jesus had with a man named Nicodemus in the Gospel of John chapter 3. And the parallel is not the numbers. Do you remember that conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus? Uh, Jesus was talking to Nicodemus. He was talking to him about being born again. Same thing happens here in verse 29 of chapter 2. We read it. It talks about being born of him. And just like in John 3, uh, he talks about being born again, and then he, he, he interrupts himself, as it were, and says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And here, he talks about being born of him, and then he says, Behold, see what great love the Father has lavished on us. Now, I expect that we're going to spend most of eternity looking at all the shades and colors and hues and wonders of the love of God. But I want you to think with me for just a minute about why John might have been writing about the love of God here. What, what's moving him? What's transfixing him here? I think John writes this way about God's love because God's love is so contrary to what we deserve. God's love makes us children of God. He says it three times. We're God's children. That's what we are. We are. And yet that's not what we deserve at all. God's love is astounding because it's so contrary to what we deserve from Him. You see, the Bible describes our natural condition. It says we're rebels. The Bible says we're traitors. We're moral reprobates. The Bible says that we're spiritually dead. We're guilty sinners. By all accounts, we're repugnant to a holy and a good God. There's no reason, no reason at all within us why he should love us. There's nothing in us that he finds particularly lovely. Last Wednesday evening, Kathy was getting ready for work the next day, right before going to bed, and she got out her AeroPress so she could make coffee in the morning. And she said, where's the filter? And I had washed the dishes. So I said, oh, it's in the the dish drainer. Just look and you'll be able to find it. And then I thought, I stopped for a minute and I thought, unless I accidentally threw it away. And it wasn't in the dish drainer. So I opened up the trash can (laughs) and I went in. And under some cracked eggs and yogurt containers and junk mail, do you know there's sales going on at most stores? I didn't know if you knew that. But (laughs) underneath the junk mail and the food that had been scraped from dishes and orange peels and dog hair, I found the filter. And I brought it out, and I washed my hands with bleach. And <laughs> there, there was nothing lovely in the garbage can. Nothing lovely. Nothing desirable. There is nothing lovely in a human being that would elicit God's love. Now, I should say, I should pause and say, human beings are made in God's image, and and every person has inherent worth and dignity being made in God's image. Human beings do things that benefit society and contribute to the world, but in comparison to God, how God made us, and who He is, we all fall short. We fall damnably short. So John is astounded. It's astounding that he should love us still. How can we comprehend this? Martin Luther might help. In 1518, Martin Luther was uh, uh, attending a a debate in the city of Heidelberg, and he uh, made a list of his points, the arguments he's going to make. And and here's one of his crucial points. Carl Truman is a Martin Luther expert. He said this is the line from Martin Luther he quotes the most often. Here it is. I wrote it down. The love of God does not find but creates that which is pleasing to it. The love of man comes into being through uh, that which is pleasing to it. So let me repeat that. Here's a crucial difference between the love of God and the love of human beings. The love of God does not find but creates that which is pleasing to it. The love of man comes into being through that which is pleasing to it. Now follow me here. So You love that which is lovely. It's It's why you married your spouse. You saw something in your spouse that was admirable. Something that was lovely. Hopefully you still do, right? You find something that's attractive. That's why you love your spouse. It's why you love puppies. It's why you love beautiful Christmas decorations. You love them because you find them lovable. But God creates that which is lovable. He makes things lovely. It's an expression of His love that He takes what is unlovely and makes it lovely. He takes, as an act of His love, people who are morally repugnant and He makes them His children. He makes them like His own dear Son. How's He done that? He did it through the cross. On the cross, the Lord Jesus took upon Himself all of our moral repugnance, all of our unloveliness, all of our sins and failures and rebellion. He took it to Himself He became repugnant to God. Even more than one individual is repugnant to God. He took to himself the ugliness of the world. And God poured out his wrath on him. He died and rose again. And God offers life and forgiveness to all who receive these gifts through the Lord Jesus. By turning to him and trusting him, you become one of God's adopted children. Everyone who comes to him through the Lord Jesus is welcome into his family. It's a new birth you see how great the love of God is? Oh, look at this. Behold this. Be in wonder over this, the great love that He has lavished on us. that we should become children of God. We dedicated these babies this morning. All of these babies are the product of the love of their parents. Their parents love one another, and, and the babies come. It's a great expression of their love. Look at God's love. What does it do? It makes us children of God. Now we should think about this um, identity for just a minute. Last week I listened to an interview with a a pastor, a counselor, his name is Deepak Reju, and, and he said that one of the things that he finds when he talks to Christians about their sin is that they feel defined by it. Somebody come in and sit down and they'll talk to him about some great struggle that they're having and, and the struggle is so weighty and so big that it's all they can think about with themselves. It's all they can identify themselves. He says it's especially true with men and women who are transfixed with pornography. It's their whole world. It defines their entire relationship with God. All I am is a failure. The only piece... Uh, they can ever they think about in their relationship with God is that he has to be disappointed with me. He has to be disheartened. He has to be unhappy with me. All God thinks of me is that I am a sinner. I am an adulterer. I am a thief. I am a porn addict. That's all they can think about. But here's the reality, brothers and sisters. This is the truest truth about you. The reason it's the truest truth about you is because it's the longest lasting truth about you. If you're follower if you are a follower of Jesus, the truest truth about you is that you are a child of God. Every other thing about you is limited. You may be a husband today, but you're not going to be a husband forever. You may be a wife today, or a father, or a mother, or a college student, or a third grader, or a plumber, or a teacher, or an architect today, but all of those identities like your sin are limited. The truest thing about you is what will last the longest. For eternity, as a matter of fact, you are a child of God, all because of the love of God. Behold, behold. Now, we have to move on, but there's one more thing that I want to point out in verse 1 before we do. Do you see how John concedes that this new identity is alienating? Did you notice that? The reason the world does not know us is that it does not know him. Here's why we're different. Here's why we don't quite fit in. Why your friends and family might identify you as a little strange. Following Jesus makes you a little strange a little unfamiliar. We're his. We're not the world's. Now, I notice this in my life. Most poignantly, one of the places is when my daughter's guidance counselor talks, about to, talks to her about courses and college. Now, my daughter's guidance counselor offers us good advice. She's certainly not trying to ruin her life. She's not trying to get her to go to crime university or anything like that. But... but Her values aren't the same as ours. Her goals aren't the same as ours for our our daughter. Her hopes and dreams for our daughter are not the same as ours. We're different in in that regard. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. We're just a little strange. The love of God motivates us in, in the direction of this alienating difference He has won our hearts. He's won our awe. He's won our admiration. And and it, it motivates us towards this change. Now John is going to write about this transforming change that takes place in the lives of followers of Jesus. Right now we're growing very slowly. But there is coming a moment of accelerated change. God has a lot of work to do in you. God has a lot of work to do in me. A lot of work to do in me. I don't know the half of the work that God has to do in me. But neither did John. Look what he says in verse 2. Dear friends, now we're children of God, and what will be has not yet been made known. There's there's this mystery to this change, but this change is, is happening. Now, before we move on, we've got to talk about this. Let's, let's talk about the second motivating factor in these verses. Let me give it to you, and then we'll talk about this more in the text. The first was the love of God, right? Since He has loved us, let's pursue whatever He has in store. Here's the second motivating factor, the second reason that we pursue this righteousness, namely the return of Christ, the return of Christ. John says, when He appears... When Christ appears, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. Here's that key word, appear. Again, that word appear is so important in John. Remember, the word appear means the invisible becomes visible. The invisible becomes visible. Here it refers to the, the coming again of the Lord Jesus. When He comes again, we'll see Him and we'll be changed. We'll be like Him. There's going to be no more gaps between God's standards and how you live. In that great day. There's going to be no more temptation. No more failure. No more sin. No more struggle. No more repentance. No more apologizing. We'll be like him. Because we'll see him as he is. I think that has to be one of the most beautiful phrases. In all of the scriptures. We're going to see him. As he is. It's a truth that's very deeply rooted in the bible. There's dozens of references to this in the scripture. To seeing God. And what it means. In fact. It comes up even in the first chapter of the Bible. The Bible says that human beings are images. We are made in the image of God. That means we're meant to reflect Him. So when you go and you look in a mirror, it's painful for some of you, when you go and you look, when you look in a mirror, you see your image back at you. It's, it's reflecting back at you. Uh, we are images of God and someday when we see him, when we see when he comes back, we see him, we're gonna reflect him perfectly. Because we're gonna see him as he is. Right now, we image bearers were cracked. A little bit like funhouse mirrors, scratched, marred. We we don't we don't reflect him like like we are in that day, when we see him as he is, then we're gonna be like him. This is the great hope of the Bible. Look at what John wrote in Revelation 22. I'm going to start reading in verse 3. No longer will there be any curse in that great day that is to come. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city and His servants will serve Him. They will, well, oh, here it is, see His face. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. Seeing is transformative. Now we have to think about this a little bit more. Uh, Paul wrote about this in a crucial passage that we read quite a bit. So John is writing about the instantaneous transformation that's going to take place when Jesus comes. We'll see him and we'll be like him. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians about this slow transformation that takes place here and now through seeing too. Look at 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So we are looking to, and we're being transformed, where do we see Jesus' glory now? 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Where do we see the glory of Christ now? We see the glory of Christ now in the gospel the good news about the Lord Jesus. The gospel is the light that displays the glory of Christ. And when we sing the gospel together, and when we study the gospel together, or we rehearse it, when we pray, we're being changed. That's how it works today. Someday, face-to-face, instantaneous, complete transformation, now in the gospel. Slowly. Paul wrote in First Corinthians thirteen twelve, For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully as I'm fully known. We used to sing an old hymn. I'm not sure when the last time we sang it here was. It was written by Carrie Beck in the early 1900s. Some of you know it. Face to face with Christ my Savior, face to face what will it be, when with rapture I behold Him, Jesus Christ who died for me. Only faintly now I see Him with the darkling veil between, but a blessed day is coming when His glory shall be seen. What rejoicing in His presence when are banished grief and pain, when the cro- crooked ways are straightened and the dark things shall be plain. Face to face, oh blissful moment, face to face to see and know, face to face with my Redeemer, Jesus Christ who loves me so. Someday, Someday. Now verse 3 mentions this specifically as motivation. It says, all who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. God's love motivates me because I want more of what he has. His return motivates me because that's my eventual destination. I'm going to be like him. Those who have that hope in themselves purify themselves. Now John doesn't use that word purify that much, very much. But he uses it in John chapter 11 in the Gospel to talk about the, the Jews who were going to Jerusalem to get ready for their religious festivals. They would purify themselves. This word purify means to rid yourself of the impurities of this world, to, to get rid of the things that contaminate your pure love for Christ. It's a Holy Spirit work. It's Word-instructed work. It's what we do so we can be like Him. I think it was John Stott who said that we should think about this verse uh, like a trip. Do you have a dream vacation? Have in mind a a place that you want to go? Some of you, let's just assume here for a minute, it's such a popular place. Let's imagine it's Paris. Lots of people want to go to Paris. Why haven't you gone to Paris? It's too expensive, right? You don't have any time. We'll talk about why you don't want to go to Paris this weekend, but we'll talk about that in a minute, right? Now imagine I came to you and I said, I really want you to be able to go to Paris. I love you. Here is $20,000 for you to go to Paris. It's more than you need. I know that's more than you need. But I don't want you to skimp on anything. You're from Lancaster County. I know how you people are. You'll take pretzels in a bag for lunch, okay? Don't do that, all right? I'm going to give you all the money that you need because I want you to get a real baguette, all right, in Paris. Take your family. So, I give you this money. You thank me for my generosity. In fact, uh, you're in awe of my lavishness. And you start planning. You buy plane tickets. You make hotel reservations. You get a passport. You you start a Visit Paris Pinterest board. Right? Or if you're old school, you go buy a, a guidebook. If you're really old school, you go to AAA and get a Paris guidebook. Right? Maybe you start learning French. Pardon, monsieur, j'ai besoin de... Je ne sais pas, right? Okay, you learn French, you take some French classes. You go, buy and, you go buy some new luggage and you get some new clothes because you can't put your old suitcase on the plane to France, right? And you can't wear what, what you're wearing. You've got to get a new outfit for Paris. You make a schedule. You go to the bank and you get some euros. You pack a gas mask because of all the riots that are happening in Paris right now, Right? <laughs> You're going to Paris. On the day your trip arrives, I drive you to the airport, and you say, how can I thank you enough? And I say, I'm just happy that you're going to Paris. That's enough, thanks. Now, if you can understand my story of your trip to Paris, you can understand this passage. Brothers and sisters, we're on our way to a land that is far away on the other side. God has lavished us with his love and he has done everything that is necessary for you to get there. It's where you're going. What language do they speak in that far away land? What's the currency of that country? Do you have a Pinterest page for that land far away? Here's the guidebook. There's more in here than, you, than just about that land, but... There's nothing better to help you prepare for that than this. If that's where you're going, and if Jesus is the one that you will see, there are lots of things that you turn from here. You don't have time to get messed up with things that are empty or paltry or dirty here. You turn from a lot of them because of where you're headed, where you're going. Look where you're going. Who's there to greet you? Do you understand? Brothers and sisters, behold the great love that he has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. That's what we are. We don't know what we're going to be like completely when he comes, but we'll we'll be like him because we're going to see him. And everyone who has this hope is getting ready. Just as the Lord Jesus himself is pure, we're getting ready. Let's pray, shall we? Father in heaven, I come before you this morning and I am thankful to you for these men and women who are here in the auditorium and then downstairs in the fellowship hall, the children and teenagers who are here in our congregation. We're thankful to you for them that we could sing together and pray together and listen to your word together this morning. Lord, we recognize that this group of people will never gather again in this same way again once in a a lifetime moment, and yet here we all are with the privilege of contemplating your great love and the return of your great Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would do this miraculous work in us by the Holy Spirit, that we would be people who are in awe, who behold the great love that you have lavished on us. It is transforming love. Lord, may it work so that it pushes us forward. We want more of what you have for us. Lord, again, we confess as we've been thinking about the last few weeks, we are quick to forget the significance and the wonder of the soon return of the Lord Jesus. Thank you for that promise that we'll see him. We in this room, we have seen wonders. We've seen beautiful things. We've seen majestic mountains, rushing rivers. We've seen jungles and forests and valleys. We've seen beautiful things. We have not seen anything like the Lord Jesus. Fill us with a hope that comes from this certainty, this sur- sure promise that the Lord Jesus is coming back. Help us to purify ourselves, even as the Lord Jesus Himself is pure. Drive us forward. With joy, we pray together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen.